welcome back to Basic Bible 101. Today we're going to cover the story of Job. It is just one of the small books that's sort of stuck in the middle of the Bible. Uh, it doesn't really seem to tie in with any of the preceding books. And so, um, but before we continue on with the rest of the prophets, which will take us to the end of the Old Testament, um, I want to go ahead and cover this book of Job. It it's entirely possible that the book of Job actually took place during the time of the patriarchs. Do you remember which book of the Bible has the patriarchs in it? If you said Genesis, you're right. Very good. Uh, it's possible that this took place during some time in there when uh, we were following the story of Jacob and Judah and all that. We don't really know anything about Job except that he was a good man and he lived in the land of Uz, U-Z. Um, because it's kind of just sort of stuck here, a lot of people have said, well, it was just like a parable or a story. It didn't really happen. Um, I tend to believe that it probably really did happen and that it had been told over and over and over through the different generations and that just eventually it got written down. Um, but that because so much of what goes on in the book of Job is so detailed and so... Uh, poignant that I think that obviously it had an impact on whoever um, reads this book and and I think you'll find that out too. If you had a chance to go ahead and read the very first few chapters of Job you'll see that it begins right off the bat with God saying how blameless Job is. So we see a, a man who is has done everything right. He has raised his kids and believe me he's had a lot of them. We find out he has seven sons and three daughters, and they spend most of their time partying. Now, <laughs> you might think that doesn't sound like a very good parent, and it doesn't to me either. However, because Job was a little concerned that his kids may be getting into trouble, he would go before the Lord and sacrifice offerings on their behalf, and because he thought, just in case they sinned, I want them covered. So obviously, as we've seen in the past, one of the ways that sins could be covered, actually it was really the only way that sins could be covered, was for there to be a sacrifice. And usually it was the sacrifice of an oxen or sheep or whatever. And so that's what Job would do. He spent a great deal of time praying and worshiping God and offering sacrifices on behalf of his children. And God just knew his heart and he knew he was a good man. So look beginning in verse 6 of chapter 1. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you put a hedge around him? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands, so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will sh surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lift, lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Okay, let's stop there for a minute because this is kind of a strange encounter. We really don't see anything like this the rest of Scripture. The first question we must ask ourselves is, who is Satan and where did he come from? 
up until this point, we have been aware of good and evil, but it's usually come from within individuals. Um, an evil bent came from their not obeying God or wanting to pursue their own ways. We have not, at, at least to this point, uh, noticed there, there was actual evil out there other than the evil spirit that we did see in uh, King Saul. If you remember back in when we were uh, first learning about the kings, uh, King Saul being the first king, uh, when he disobeyed the Lord and he went to uh, confer with this um, prophetess, or I don't know what you want to call it, I guess a medium is what they called her, um, who would conjure up spirits and such to remember that story back then, and if not, be sure and go back and read it again. Uh, um, it's at that time that the Lord withdraws his spirit from Saul, because remember he had given Saul a special uh, anointing of the presence of God in his life and instead uh, allows an evil spirit to inhabit uh, and torment uh, King Saul. So for our sakes we're kind of thinking well so where did Satan come from? This is the first we hear about him. There are some other mentions of Satan in, and it's primarily in the New Testament when it talks about uh, that that Satan was an angel and he fell from the sky. Basically, he um, was condemned by God because he wanted to be equal with God. And God said, I don't think so. And so he cast him out of heaven. Here we see him allowed to come back before God's presence. There's all kinds of theological questions this could open up, none of which I'm going to cover in basic Bible. And I'm sure you're thinking, oh, wait a minute. We want to know all this, in which case I say, great, study it. But for our purposes, we want to just cover what the Bible says. Why it says it or how it, how it gets there, that's up to you to find out in future studies on your own or in other Bible studies, hopefully. Um, so we see that Satan shows up with the angels, and God is saying, where have you been? And he says, roaming to and fro on the earth. This is still happening today. Satan roams to and fro, and he looks for those who he can destroy. So we must be very careful about allowing Satan into any part of our life. Uh, we give God, actually, most for the most part, we give God the right to live in our heart when we become a Christian. However, we can allow Satan to have certain parts of our life because we just aren't ready to turn those over to God yet. And it's in that area, that realm, those, those things that you don't yet want to give up to God, that Satan can get a foothold in our life. And once he does, he can uh, take more and more territory until our lives really do not reflect God at all. But in this case, we see that Job has been... Um, upright, um, doing what he was supposed to be doing, and it's described by Satan that uh, Job had a hedge around him. I believe that there's a lot of um, truth to the fact that God protects his children. That doesn't mean he doesn't allow us to be tested, because obviously we'll see here that he does. But I think that for the most part, uh, the only things that can happen to us, or the only... Um, ways that Satan can get at us is when God gives him permission. Remember God is a sovereign God. He is in control of everything, even Satan, and he can allow Satan to test us, tempt us, whatever, just as he did with Christ, and which we'll cover in the New Testament when Jesus himself is tempted by Satan. Um, like I said, we don't hear a lot about Satan. We hear a lot about 
uh, the evil that we have in our own heart, our own sin, and we hear about the evil that exists in the world because it is a broken world. Once um, mankind chose evil over good, uh, basically sin entered the world, and we have been a product of that ever since. And so we see here that Satan says, well, you set that hedge around him. Of course I can't get to him, more or less, is what he's saying. And God says to Satan, okay, I'll let you test him for a while. I'm sure the next question you would have is, why would God uh, cause or allow such grief to happen to a man who was being so upright and doing all he was supposed to do? Once again, it's not a question I can answer, but this I know, that God loves us, and those that he loves, he protects, uh, but he also tests. He tests our faith. Do you remember when we studied about Abraham, and God asked him to sacrifice his son Isaac, and at the last minute, he said, no, no, um, I, I just wanted to make sure that your heart was true and that you were faithful. So it could be that God allows testing in our life because he is testing to see if our heart is, is true and faithful. And you know what? Suffering and trial has a lot to, of um, benefit in our own life too because it does build in us endurance, patience, perseverance, um, all the different things that James 1 describes. And so... In fact, it even says to be counted joy, be joyful, counted as joy when you face trials of many kinds. But in this case, Job is being just minding his own business and doing what he's supposed to be doing. God gives Satan the right to go ahead and start inflicting problems upon poor Job. And so immediately, Job, uh, well, well, let's take up with verse 13. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. All right, Job's first bad, bit of bad news is he's lost all of his oxen and donkeys. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. Okay, so now he doesn't have any sheep anymore. Half of his wealth has probably been wiped out. Verse 17, while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert. We might call this a tornado. Struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. I am the only one who has escaped to tell you this. At this, Job got up and tore his robe, shaved his head. Then he fell on the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Okay, he has now lost all of his children, all of his wealth, and he's basically left with just a pauper with just his land and still with his wife. Uh, we'll see that that might not be quite such a blessing here in a minute. But in this, we see that Job is not willing to, to condemn God, to ask God why, to um, blame God in any way. His heart is, God gave it all to me. It was his to take away. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, this is a hard thing to think about because in the similar circumstances, we would be, at least I know I would be, asking God, why? Why are you doing this? But Job doesn't ask why. He simply accepts from God's hand what God is dishing out. And to me, that is the very first sign of somebody who has walked close to the Lord because they so trust God. All right, now let's begin in chapter 2. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied, a man will give all he has for his own life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bone, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Farewell then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. All right, like I said, his wife wasn't much help here when she's just saying, Hey, give it up. Just realize that you're cursed and curse God because he's been cruel to you, blah, blah, blah. It's the natural reaction of someone who is not walking in faith with God. I think it's the natural reaction even of those of us who do try and walk in faith with God because there is something in us that thinks we must have lost favor with God. We must have somehow sinned against him. There must be some reason why God is doing this. And yet we clearly see that God found nothing wrong with Job. Instead, he is basically saying, Job's been upright, and Job knows that. He knows that he's been upright, and so he is accepting from God's hand evil as well as good. Um, the reason this gets to be so difficult for us is because we are such sinners by nature, and the chances that there is an area in our life that is filled with sin is so great that most of the time we would have to agree with God, okay, I feel your... Uh, you're disciplined because I need to change this or that in my life. But here we see Job knowing that he's right before God. I know that you might think, how can you ever know that you have a right standing before God? And it's very simple. If you have asked Jesus into your heart and have confessed your sins, have said, God, I agree with you. By nature, I'm a sinner and I just need your Holy Spirit within me. God is faithful to forgive our sins. In fact, First uh, John 1.9 says, He is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you have done that, before God, you are in right standing. I know sometimes it doesn't feel like it, but it is the truth that the blood of Christ on that cross covers us. It covers us. And when God looks at us, he can't see us any other way than as blameless because of the death of his son on the cross. So we can say with Job, at any time, given any circumstance, uh, blessed be the name of the Lord, whether he brings good or evil, and trust that God is doing what he needs to do in our life. 
not because of something we've done, but because of we, what he intends to do. All right, so we have, after this, Job's friends that come by. Friends are such great things, aren't they? There have been so many times when I've appreciated my friends because they show up when I'm in trouble. And they sit with me and they help me and they help me figure things out. And sometimes they're just there and they don't say anything. But sometimes they do say things. And sometimes they're right on in what they say. Other times they are just trying to provide some kind of comfort. And therefore, what they say may be... Um, misinterpreted by us. And so we see kind of a little bit of this happening here. Job's friends show up and they sit with him for a whole week. They don't do anything but sit on the ground with him and just mourn with him, which is so precious of them. Here he is sick with sores. You don't know if they're contagious or not. And yet, and he's broke. He has nothing to offer his friends. And yet his friends come and sit with him. That's a mighty statement of the kind of man Job was, that he had such dear friends. But after a while, his friends start thinking, well, surely there's a reason that you're going through this because, you know, you're a good man, Job, and God shouldn't have punished you. At this time, and really all throughout history, people have believed that if you're good, God blesses you, and if you're bad, he punishes you. But we find here that God is not punishing in any way, Job. Beginning in chapter 3, Job begins to speak, and he starts cursing the day that he was born, and cursing that his mother ever had him, and why wasn't his mother just barren, and he is grieving, but he's not condemning God for this. He is grieving because he's feeling so badly that he just wished he'd never been born. I'm sure that, you know, his friends are thinking, well, this is a pretty dramatic response, but they probably can't blame him because look at how much he suffered. All through chapter 3, it's a, a long dissertation by Job explaining that it's better to just not be born. That, that if life is going to be so filled with hurt and pain, you know, I, I think that there may be some wisdom even in that. That um, it's hard to think of life you know, snuffed out at a young age. But sometimes it is a way of not having to suffer on this earth. And the older you get, the more suffering you see and the more that you're susceptible to. And so, you know, there is a natural tendency to just say, I just wish I'd never been born because then I could just be with the Father and, and not even have to mess with all this. Maybe it would be better if I just slept through my life. Uh, and that is one of our responses to grief and to sadness and sorrow and depression is sleep. We just want to forget it all and crawl in bed and not even think about it. Chapter 4 starts, Job's friends start trying to encourage him. But instead of encouraging him, they have this sort of backhanded way of saying, well, maybe you're to blame. I think it's a natural tendency when we can't figure out what God is doing to try and um, come up with hypotheses and then test them and say, hey, I think this is what God is trying to do. And of course, Job's friends don't have a clue what God is doing, but they can't believe that God is random, that he would just do whatever he wants to. And yet we know that he does do whatever he wants to. But when we can't understand why God's doing what he's doing, we start looking for ways to be able to understand it. Now that's not always bad because if there is a sin issue in our life or some area that God wants us to change or grow in, it's good for us to determine what that is and 
then to make changes in our life accordingly. But there are many times in this life when we won't know, we'll never know. Uh, pain and suffering that comes from the loss of a loved one, uh, the loss of a job that you loved or a, lo a great deal of money or um, deceit by a being deceived by a business partner or any you know any opportunity that uh, seems totally unfair and you didn't deserve those are the things that we begin to start saying well why is God doing this and maybe there is something I should change and if there is then we need to say okay God what is it but there may not be, and that's just the truth. There may not be anything in our life that needs that God's work trying to um, get us to confess at all, which is the case with Job. But his friends can't quite believe that, and so they keep saying, you know, God is just. You must have done something, because otherwise God wouldn't let this happen. And, you know, honestly, there's a lot of truth to what his friends say to him. Chapters 4 and 5, there's a lot of truth in there that... Um, you know, God wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. Uh, he'll protect the righteous. Uh, I mean, on and on you can see and hear truth of how God does work most of the time. But he doesn't work that way all of the time. And I think that's the danger is sometimes we um, think that because God has been a certain way in our lives up to this point, that that's the way he'll always be. And then we find that, no, God has different plans, different ways of working, that he is the God, and he has a much bigger picture that he's working on than just our little life, and we are just a tiny cog in the wheel. Um, so Job replies to his friends, you know, if I thought, you're right, God can do whatever he wants, but if I thought I had done something wrong then I could totally understand it but this doesn't make any sense to me at all he's basically agreeing with them and yet saying but I haven't s sinned he says um, down in chapter 6 verse 24 teach me and I will be quiet show me where I have been wrong um, how painful are honest words but what do your arguments prove so he's saying yes what you've said is true but it's not true about me and I think that nobody knows but Job where his heart has been. And he knew he was, was blameless before the Lord. We see that in Job's reply to his friends. Look at the middle of uh, chapter 7 where he says, What is man that you make so much of him, that you give him so much attention, that you examine him every morning and test him every moment? Will you never look away from me, or let me alone even for an instant? If I have sinned, what have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive my sins? For I will soon lie down in the dust. You will search me, but I will be no more. So here even we see that Job is beginning to question God, and he says, you know what, I, I don't know why I'm getting all this attention from you, God. I don't really think I deserve it. But you know what, you can forgive me of my sins even still. So um, another one of Job's friends type, uh, chimes in here and begins kind of seizing on the opportunity to dig in, in a little bit more with Job that maybe you you really should have listened to God and you didn't or some or thereabouts. So we see that Job begins to dread his life. He he just mourns and mourns 
One of the beautiful things about the book of Job is that when you are going through hard times, this is a very comforting book because it's like someone has put in words, put words to your feelings. And all through this, we become so aware of how Job is so um, heartbroken before God and doesn't understand what God is doing. And the truth that he speaks about God, which he does over and over again, um, say that God is good and that I don't, you know, that um, yes, he does uh, protect the righteous, all the things that he knows to be true. Um, But yet in his own life, he sees, but it doesn't make sense what's happening to me. Okay. After his friends all finally gang up on him and then, you know, try and give him the benefit of their wisdom, which is really not speaking to the point, sometimes it really is better. Maybe those first seven days with his friends was the best when they just didn't say anything at all. And if you have friends that like to just come and just explain to you what God is doing and you, after a while, grow weary of it and think, no, that's really not what God is doing. Don't feel bad about just telling him, you know, I just need some time alone or sit with me in silence because I just don't, you know, talk to the hand. I just don't need any more grief in my life and you're just going to pile it on. So think about that when you're at a sitting with a friend who's lost a loved one, a spouse, a son or daughter, a parent. And um, if you don't Maybe it is better to just say nothing. Just the ministry of presence, just being there for them can be enough. Okay, finally God shows up. It's not like he hasn't been there. He has. He's been very well of what's going on with Job. And now he's going to explain to Job who God is. You know, Job may never have had the opportunity to see God in the light that he's about to see him in had he not gone through this time. Beginning in chapter 38, it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. So we see that because Job did begin to question God, which he did, God is saying, Oh, you think you know so much? And it's true. They've spouted an awful lot of wisdom about God but they don't know everything about God. God is so big and so much more beyond anything we can imagine that just trying to explain him is impossible. And so God says, I'll tell you what, let me ask you a few questions. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measure lying across it? On what were its footings set? And who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. The rest of the passage just gives more and more description to how God formed the earth. And, you know, the earth is so complicated. We still haven't figured out gravity. There's so many intricate things about the world we live in that scientists have spent all of their lives trying to understand. And here God is just reminding Job, hey, You haven't figured it out yet, and I don't think you're going to. Uh, He goes on to talk about, God says to him, um, Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? From whose womb uh, comes the ice? And who gives birth to the frost from the heavens? When the waters come hard as stone, when the surface of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? Okay, the Pleiades, what is that? Um... 
can you loose the chords of Orion? We know those two things as being stars, you know, a, a constellation. Um, Pleiades, I think it's how it's said, maybe not. And Orion are um, constellations. He says, can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Once again, another one of the constellation stars, uh, system of stars that uh, people who study astronomy would be familiar with. He's pointing out that God knows all about the stars. He tells the stars when to show up, where to be at any given time. Uh, did you send the lightning bolts on their way? Did they report to you? Here we are. Who endowed the heart with wisdom or gave understanding to the mind? I mean, those are just simple things that God says, Hey, I, I've done this. Can you do this? Then he goes on to talk about all the different creatures, creatures that he's created. When he talks about um, animals, he talks about one that we might refer probably sounds an awful lot like a dinosaur. Now I know that all kinds of science says that there weren't any people around at the same time as dinosaurs. So you might wonder how would Job even be able to relate to what God's talking about? This creature that surely sound the Leviathan that certainly sounds like some kind of dinosaur. Uh, I don't know, but you know what? I'm willing to bet that perhaps Job was there at the time of, of these types of animals, whatever they were, and that they have since become extinct. Um, chapter It's actually in chapter 40, verse 15. Let's look at that. Look at the behemoth, which I made along with you, which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength he has in his loins, what power in the muscles of his belly. His tail sways like a cedar. His sinews of his thighs are close-knit. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like rods of iron. He ranks first among the works of God, yet his maker can approach him with his sword. This, this, What is this creature? We don't know. It doesn't sound like anything we have now. Um, some may say it might be a crocodile or some kind of a dragon. We don't even know that dragons exist. We think they were um, just mythical creatures, but maybe they weren't. Um, it's just kind of interesting. Um, if you go ahead and read the rest of that, you'll, you'll see... Uh, chapter 41 begins, Can you pull in the Leviathan with the fish hook, or tie down his tongue with the rope? Can you put a cord through his nose, or pierce his jaw like a hook? It certainly seems he's obviously talking about a very, very big creature. Perhaps a whale, although it talks about um, him, like he leaves his wake behind him. Um, you know, I don't know what these creatures are, but whatever they were, they were things that Job would have been familiar with and certainly much bigger than anything we have encountered in our time. And the whole time that God is talking to Job, he's more or less questioning him saying, well surely you know, he's being kind of sarcastic about it saying, obviously you were born when the world began and surely you're aware of all this, Cer certainly you can take, you can control the Beamuth and the um, Levathon. And of course, Job gets just quieter and quieter, and, and I'm sure he's shrinking the whole time. When God finishes talking, we see Job reply in chapter 42, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I have spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. I love this verse because it reminds us that 
every time we question God, it's because we don't understand. And when God actually shows up and points things out to us, it's very humbling. Uh, Job continues to say, You said, Listen now, and I will speak, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So no matter how good Job thought he was, he realizes that compared to God, he has no right to stand before God. Back in chapter 9, verses 32 through 35, Job even says, you know, if I just had somebody that could come between God and I and intercede for me. And you know what? God knew that. And that's why he sent Jesus Christ to be the one who could intercede uh, between God and us and, and make our case known. So it's a very interesting book. I hope that you will have time to finish reading the middle part of it and the end of it. Um, I think that God can show us a lot of his character in this book. Um, we're about to run out of time, so I'm going to stop here. And then next week we will get back into the prophets with Jonah. And until then, I want to thank you for listening. And remember, you can always find out more information at basicbible101.com. Thanks, and have a great day. <music>